Would you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, please? Traditions that are not explained are traditions that are dead. And as you heard this morning, we have a habit of having a combination of congregational vote and elder vote on major decisions. And so you might think, well, where did that come from? And the answer is it comes from Scripture. I could show you a number of different places, but I want to particularly point to Acts 15 so that you understand what Wayne said, what we're going to do next week in the context of being a scriptural method. So let's go through the Council of Jerusalem. What we have here is an account of the first major controversy over the issue of uh, circumcision, whether Gentiles, of which every one of us here, I think with the exception of Bob, we're all Gentiles, whether when we become Christians whether we should have to be circumcised. And this was an incredibly tense issue in the early church, right after the Lord ascended into heaven. And the reason is that God had revealed himself to the Jews, and central to his revelation of himself was by him marking them with circumcision as his people. Every one of them, the men, were to be circumcised on the eighth day. All right? And so now you come into the period of time where the full revelation of Jesus Christ comes, and the question is, well, do people need to become Jews in order to become Christians? Or can they just like, you know, just flaunt in in the midday and not having borne the heat of circumcision, can they get as much pay? <laughs> if, if you understand what I'm saying, you know? I mean, shouldn't they have to observe Moses' law? Shouldn't they have to be circumcised? So what we're talking about is adult men. To become Christians should have to be circumcised. Well, if you're not a man, trust me, no man wants to be circumcised. All right? And that was the issue. And bound up with it was the issue of cleanliness. Circumcision stood for being clean. And so the law stood for being clean, circumcision stood for being clean, the Jews were clean, and they looked at all the Gentiles as goyim, as dirty. They despised them. They would not eat with them. They would not even eat with them. And then all of a sudden, God pours out his spirit on the Gentiles. And it's earth-shaking. And so this is the conflict. And if you know your Bible, you know that the book of Galatians is just this incredibly intense book dealing with the problem. Well, before the book of Galatians, we have the book of Acts, and we see here in the middle of the book of Acts, the council of Jerusalem. It's the same issue. Now let's read. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. That's the joining of the issue. That's the issue. In their case, the issue was so the men came down all right, from Judea and they began to teach the brethren that they had to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses or they couldn't be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, 
The brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So, picture it. Forget now that the issue is circumcision for a second and just think. There's a huge disagreement in the church. Huge, great dissension and debate. It's incredibly tense. There are two sides. One side says everybody has to be circumcised to be saved. The other side says, nope, no longer. Paul and Barnabas say, nope, no longer. The men that came down from Judea say, oh yeah, you've got to or you won't be saved. This is the division. And so what do they do? Well, what they decide, yeah, you can sit down. Sorry. Because you're just going to be standing up, sitting down, standing up, sitting down, because I'm going to just keep reading through the chapter. If you want to stand up every time I read, though, that I, I would approve of it. <laughs> Thank you, Abram, for your leadership in that. Okay, so, so they say, hey, you know something? We need help on this. What we need to do is we need to send some men down to Jerusalem, and we need to ask the mother church what they think. So we have a church up in Indy called Clear Note Church. So they have a big battle, and they say, you know, let's go back down to Bloomington and ask them what they think. So they send some men down, and they say, would you tell us what you think we should do? Because we're so divided over the issue. It's like going to split us wide open. It already has split us wide open. We need help. All right. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. So in other words, as they traveled, what was going on was they were passing through other groups of Christians and saying, you wouldn't believe what's happened. Gentiles are being saved. Can you imagine this? God's pouring his spirit out on Gentiles. Then verse 4, when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and elders. Okay, picture this. So there's a division. It's splitting the church. You've got Paul and Barnabas on one side. You have other people on another side. The church says, we can't handle this. Let's go down and appeal to the mother church. They go down. On the way, they tell God, everybody what God's doing. And then they get down to Jerusalem, and they immediately go into the elders' meeting. And in a private room, we meet at the end of that hall over there. Okay, in a private room, they sit down and they say, hey, we have a terrible problem. We've got a division going on at our church. But if you just heard what I read, you know that's not what happened. Look at it again. What it says is, when they arrived at Jerusalem, verse 4, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. So in other words, immediately it would have been known to the entire church why they were there. The whole church would have known it. Because, can you imagine the describing what's happened? And what's happened is the Gentiles have had the Holy Spirit pour out on them. And you're not going to know why they're showing up? No, they, everybody would have known. And then, in case we didn't, then verse 5 shows us, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So, who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the religious officers like pastors and elders, but they were the fundamentalists. Okay? They were like uh, Bob Jones University. Okay? Or that Bible college down in Pensacola. Or me. Very, very, very conservative ones. All right? And so they've been the guardians of the law of God. 
And then all of a sudden, God blows the thing to smithereens by having the Spirit come on the Gentiles. And so the perfect keepers of the tradition all of a sudden are kind of gone. And you know, what you have to do is you have to make yourself subordinate to God. (laughs) If you claim to be defending God and what he said, and he shows that he's done with that dispensation, you, you, you better step aside, but they were not willing to step aside because they, it wasn't really about God, was it? It was really about them. <laughs> and, and, and none of you have any understanding of that, right? Because when you fight with your wife, it's never, a, never about you. It's always about principle in your home. And some of you have a wife who lets you think that. And that's not a good wife. (laughs) A good wife does not let you get away with being high-handed in decisions in a home. You understand? The home is has a husband and father is its servant, not as its lord. And so here these guys were, all they were were servants of Christ, servants of God, servants of his church. But when God showed that we were now moving in a different direction, it was about them because they weren't going to give up their perquisites. They were still the perfect keepers of the flame, you know. And so they stood up and they said, nope, nope, nope. You're wrong, Paul and Barnabas. Those men up in Antioch are right. You can't be saved unless you're circumcised. And of course, every good husband and father who, who, who has his pride at stake, has wonderful reasons why he's right, right? I tell people that as a pastor, and I don't think this is more true of me than any pastor, if you want to argue to paint the walls black, you can make a case from Scripture. And if any of you have had fights with your husband ever, or your roommates that have gotten nasty, You know how devious we can be in the reasons we give for the positions we hold. What infuriates me in a fight with Mary Lee is when she tells me that it's because I've drunk too much coffee. (laughs) And if you think about it, you think, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, you know, can't you just admit you've drunk too much coffee? Well, no, not if we have a principle. (laughs) You know, I can't admit that my coffee has influenced how I'm arguing my principle. (laughs) Are you kidding? Why, then anarchy would break loose. You know, one of two things is true right now. Either a lot of you men are not very self-aware or you're extremely self-aware. Because there should be more laughter here than there is. Listen, if you have leadership and you're in a position of authority, you should see all the time how you are abusing your position of authority and getting your way and acting as if it's a principle. Come on. Lighten up. Admit who you are. Because I guarantee it ain't just me. Or, if I can say it as a Presbyterian would say it, it, it isn't just myself. No, nah, it's a joke. Okay. 
Some of the sect of the Pharisees, verse 5, who had believed, stood up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. So what's going on here? Well, what we see here is that you've got a division in the church. They send representatives down. Those people get there, explain it to the whole church. The whole church hears some Pharisees who had believed, very interesting there, Pharisees who had believed, stood up and, and engaged the fight in Jerusalem. Then what did they do? You see it? They went private. They went into the elders' meeting then. You see that there? Okay? The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, how much debate? Much debate. Was it tense? You bet it was tense. Is that good? Wouldn't it have been better if there had been no disagreement? Uh, you say no, but come on, justify that, Linda. Why do you say no? Why? Okay, to open it up to a mixture, you're going to make a better decision. It gets different people's ideas into it. Now, that's a beautiful statement of American ideology, right? Because, after all, we live in a democracy, right? Is there any biblical text that supports what Linda says? Ho, 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 ho. This is a Baptist speaking. All right. These Baptists know their Bibles. I wonder if you got the right one. Read it. Just, there's one verse that pretty much does the job. Uh Uh-oh, I don't think you have the right one. Let me look. Wait, let me see. Point to it. It's in here. No, that's not it, although that's a good one. Anybody have one? If, If you had to be limited to one verse, what verse would you say? Did anybody know it? Remember what she said again. She said, well, you open it up and different people express their, and then you have a better decision. Remember? That's what she said. It's good American ideology, politically, right? Democracy. But is there a Bible verse that says it? Huh? Nope. That's not it. Let me read it to you. put you out of your misery. Okay? Verse 18, chapter 11, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part I believe it. Then verse 19, For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. (laughs) There has to be factions among you so that God can show where the right is. Weird. (laughs) Isn't that weird? There have to be factions among you so that God can show what's right. You know what I say all the time about myself? I say, would not God make me a robot? 
because life would be so much simpler if I were a robot. And if I can't be a robot, then a marionette. <laughs> Something where God, you know, but somehow God wants me to be expressing my faith in life. And so as a congregation, we could say, couldn't God just make us like a theophany, <laughs> you know, where everything appears. You know, like in the Old Testament where they're in the wilderness and they have to like travel when the, the smoke travels and, and the fire travels and stay when the smoke stays and the fire stays. And then the Bible says what? What it says is, for there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. In other words, um, for some reason that is not evident to us, it is good for us to have division so that God's will can become clear. Now, here's the problem with this. The problem is sin leads to the division and sin comes out of the division because almost never where a vote goes down and there is a minority that loses, almost never is that minority willing to put the issue to rest once the vote is taken. Remember Wayne talked about how often in elders' meetings where there are intense decisions that afterwards you'll have people violate the process. Remember that? You heard him say it. Now, how do people violate a process once a decision is made? The way they violate it is they go out and they say, we decided, but I didn't really agree. And so what they do is, when they're looking at the men that they're supposed to agree with, they say, I agree. But then they go outside and they say, well, <laughs> you know, sweetheart, I really didn't agree. I mean, I've had this happen. I get home, I get a phone call from an elder. An elder's gotten home and talked to the wife and all of a sudden, he's not unified with the men anymore. He's unified with his wife. <laughs> we all understand this, right? Right? And so, what happens here, watch what happens. The apostles and the elders came to go to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did also to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, you have to understand what's at stake here is circumcision. When he says cleansing their hearts by faith, he's saying not cleansing them by circumcision any longer, because that's what circumcision was. It was about cleanliness. But now, cleansing their hearts by faith. In other words, now they don't have to be circumcised. Their hearts are cleansed by faith. They don't need to be circumcised to be cleansed. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. All the people. Now, where did the people come from? <laughs> Remember how we just said that it was the elders and they went private? Somehow, this explanation, the account is being given in such a way that this explanation bridges between a private meeting and a public meeting. You see that? Because all of a sudden, you, get, you have the people again. All right? All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. 
Isn't that weird? You got Peter speaking, but all the people, it was private, but now it's public, and now it's Paul and Barnabas explaining. And after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this word, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. In other words, James now stands up. James addresses him. James says, look, this is what was prophesied in the Old Testament. He argues from Scripture. He argues from Scripture for a position. Now, immediately, everybody that disagreed with him said what? They said, oh, that man is so proud. He's using scripture. Well, I have scripture too. It was really stupid of James. What he should have done is argued from the U.S. Constitution. Because then you wouldn't think he's proud or high-handed. And he should have just sat down. Didn't need to stand up. He was probably 6'4". And heavy. You know, in other words... Listen, anybody that was predisposed to want their way and to refuse to listen to the Holy Spirit had lots of reasons why they could attack James and dismiss what he was saying. James argues from Scripture, and when he gets done quoting Scripture, he says, verse 19, therefore it is our judgment. Is that what it says? No. It says, it is my judgment. (laughs) What gives him the right? (laughs) My. Who cares what you think, James? My. You know, I thought this was about we, you know, the group. Therefore, it is my judgment that we, it's my judgment that we, the imperial we, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things. Okay, now here's what we're going to write them. It's my judgment that we write them. Now, why would you write them? You'd write them so that the, the message was not dependent upon the accuracy of the communicator, but rather on the accuracy of what you write. A message is formal, and the person that takes it can't twist it, you see? They know how much there's is conflict involved with this. So, hey, let's write them. Let's not trust Paul and Barnabas because then the people up there could think Paul and Barnabas have twisted what the Jerusalem church said. But no, we'll write it. And then it'll be very clear to them that it's not Paul and Barnabas twisting the message. All right? We write to them, verse 20, that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood, For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. Do you see this? It's beautiful. It's drop-dead gorgeous. This is Presbyterianism. Presbyterian does not mean infant baptizing. Presbyteros is elder. The essence of being Presbyterian is that we believe in elder rule. 
An elder rule does not mean that the elders make all the decisions. What it means is that the elders and the congregation together make the decisions. We are not Episcopal and Roman Catholic where the top dogs send the decisions down and the congregation is moot and mute. All right? And we're not Baptists where we... (laughs) My image of... Excuse me. (laughs) But here's my image of Baptists. Come here. Come here. Come here. This is my image of Baptists. Here's the pastor. He's preaching. Stand. No, no, no. Stand here. All right. Here's the pastor. He's preaching. And and Baptists, it's like... Okay, you can sit down. (laughs) The congregation... Anytime it wants to, it boots the... It boots their leaders. And so you know what's true in Baptist churches? You have one of two things. You have either a pope as a pastor who's the alpha male and can whoop it up on everybody in the church. Or what you have is a a succession of pastors who are basically at the mercy of the congregation. The reason we have elders is so that there's something between the pastor and the congregation. That's why. And that, that, that elders board can veto me or can approve me. Do you understand? And David and Stephen, do you understand this? And so what you end up having is what we call the plurality of the eldership. The plurality of the eldership. What you have in historic Baptist con- or other congregational systems is the, the, the monotone of the eldership. There's only one elder, and that's the pastor, and everybody else is deacons. Okay? In Presbyterian, this is... Do you see what I just read? That this is what goes on here. You have the officers and the congregation. And it's back and forth between the officers and the congregation so that when the decision is made, then the congregation and the officers together write to the church in Antioch. And then what do they write? When they write, this is what they say. Okay? They sent this letter. Since they have heard, verse 24, that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. Now, people, is that a rebuke? You bet that's a rebuke. They not just saying where the truth is, but they are completely condemning those who have divided that church and harmed the souls of the people in that church. That letter is going to be read publicly. The people who wanted this issue adjudicated and who were nasty are going to be sitting there in that congregation hearing themselves rebuked as being harmers of souls. All right? It seemed good to us having become of one mind. Do you notice that? Having become of one mind. Okay, having become of, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. And then this, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Now listen, 
You've heard me describe this. You see it in the text, and you always thought that that text was only important in showing us that we should now have a different way of being saved and it shouldn't involve circumcision. But you never thought that that text should determine how we govern ourselves. But this is how we govern ourselves. We have a controversial issue, and it is debated and discussed in a combination of congregational meetings and private meetings of the officers. And as those two groups work together and really fight, (laughs) really fight, the time comes when the Holy Spirit has brought unity, and then you describe it by saying, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Aren't you glad that you're a part of that and us? If it says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit, don't you want to be and me? (laughs) It seemed good to the Holy Spirit, but not to me. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit, but not to Church of the Good Shepherd. (laughs) No, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, and so here's the decision. Now, listen, any of you that have grown up in a healthy home, a healthy home, any of you who have grown up in a healthy home have seen this happen regularly, where you have some combination of the will of the children and the wife and the husband all together, and some combination of mom and dad going into the bedroom and shutting the door. (laughs) And you all know what's going on in that bedroom with the door shut. If you never saw your parents fight, they had a bad marriage. Or if the fighting was just a very low level, that's nasty. God uses disagreements. God uses the congregation. God uses the elders. The elders come to what they believe is the right decision. They come to you as a congregation. They say it seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit. Now, what do you think? You say, well, we'll think about it. And then you say, well, it doesn't seem good to us. The congregation say, the, the elders say, well, it seemed good to us, but if it doesn't seem good to you, it, fl- it fails. <laughs> Can you imagine me going to Wayne at the end of that elders meeting and saying to Wayne, well, Wayne, you lost, and it's good to have division so it can be clear who's right, who has God's approval. Now, a couple more things I'll be done. Number one, listen, this decision was just no big deal in the elders' meeting. We've had decisions that have been big deals. You want to know one? It was a real big deal. Both times we debated, it was a big deal whether or not we'd have wine and communion. That was tense. This, it weren't tense. It just wasn't even tense. And so Wayne accurately summarized it, and you saw his affect as he did it, what his, what his posture was, which was no big deal. So you say, well, if it's no big deal, then why is he getting up, and are you getting up and spending so much time on it? And the answer is, this decision of the name involves things that are extremely important for our church. Namely... Why do we have a pastor's college, and why have we planted a church in Indy? Those things are important, and often 
It's tiny little things that end up standing for things that are incredibly heavy. And so you can have a bunch of guys saying, well, let's call the association Clear Note Fellowship, and nobody really likes it. David Canfield says that it's Femi, right? And everybody kind of went, yeah, it is. And yet, you go ahead and choose the name. Why? Because you want to communicate something. Remember how he was talking about how he didn't want to have to explain to uh, friends and family members that there was not one seminary in the country that could train our people right, and that there was no denomination that was good enough. Well, that's what people say about us, but that's not why we have a pastor's college. We don't have a pastor's college because there's no pastor's college that our men can go to. We've sent a number of men away to seminaries. We've sent them to Westminster in California, to Covenant in St. Louis, to Reformed in Jackson, Mississippi, to Reformed in Orlando. Um, I think that those are the seminaries that guys have gone to. But as they came back and described their experience, the only ones that we really wanted to continue to send people to was Reformed in Jackson. (laughs) We didn't want to send them to the other ones anymore. You say, well, why? And I say, well, you know, when you have three hours, you know, this afternoon at the Walk for Life, come talk to me, I'll tell you. All right? In other words, there were certain things that went on it there. But I'll give you a clue, all right? And the issue isn't that there's no denomination that's good enough. We've tried to become a part of RP. We've tried to become a part of Sovereign Grace. Any of you heard of Sovereign Grace? The problem is... We have unity between Baptists and Presbyterians on infant baptism. Some of us believe in infant baptism, some don't. And we have unity. We allow each other freedom of conscience. There is not a denomination in the country other than the Evangelical Free Church, which allows infant baptism. And when I talked to their denominational leader, he said, I don't think we have one church in the country that practices it. Well... What's the point of having permission to do something that nobody does? It sounds to me like that's gamey. (laughs) You know? We allow it, but don't you ever do it. All right? And so the problem is that what we find is what we want from a denomination is we want real accountability locally. We have no aspirations of being a national organization that can take pride in how big it is. We simply want to have a presbytery, a group of churches that are accountable to each other. Okay? That's it. So it's not that we don't think that there are any denominations that do a good job. We do think there are. But we think that it's important that as our men get trained and go out and plant churches, that there's real accountability between those churches, and nobody will have us because of our position on baptism. Now, does that mean that nobody's ever done what we do on baptism? No, it doesn't. Mary Lee and I grew up at College Church in Wheaton, which is about the main evangelical church in Wheaton, and it had the same agreement on baptism as we do. But the difference is that they don't have accountability between their churches, and we want to have accountability between ours. In other words, the difference is they're content to be one church alone. And so if you go to that church and you say to yourself, does this church a part of a denomination? They say, no. What do you say? You say, well, shame on you. Nobody's good enough for you. No, you don't say that. You just understand it's a congregational church. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know? It's not a part of any denomination. Now, if you want to know why we have problems, here's why we have problems. And this is my final point. Here I have a record of the worship of the first Protestants. This is a record of the first Protestants, how they worshipped. So you've got the Roman Catholic Church with the bells and the smells, and the mass, and Jesus is sacrificed endlessly, and you've got the Pope, you've got all that, and then all of a sudden, God brings reform to the church. And it's called the Reformation, and everybody that comes out of that is called a Protestant. Are you with me? This is a record of the worship of the Protestants, all of them. Now let me read it to you. Here's how every single Sunday they worshiped. I'm just going to give you the order of worship. Are you ready? It started by scripture sentences, something like, our help is in the name of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. And then it proceeded to a confession of sin. Now, how long do I have to read before you say, well, that's not like any church I've ever been in. I go to churches when I'm out of here, and let me tell you, the churches I like don't have a confession of sin. Do you know how unusual it is to have a confession of sin in Protestant worship now? Okay, so right away they start their worship with a sentence from Scripture and then they confess their sins. Next, they have absolution from God, promise of forgiveness. And then, you know what they do? They sing the Ten Commandments. Now, come on, people. How many of you have been in a church? Do you know, in my entire life, I have never, ever been in a worship service that has sung the Ten Commandments. Never. I knew you were going to say that. I wasn't here last week. Now, how many of you have been in a church where every single worship service began with singing the Ten Commandments? Anybody? Every single one of those Reformed churches sang the Ten Commandments. Can you imagine singing the Ten Commandments in any PCA church today? Baptist churches. I mean, it's ludicrous. It's like, you know, that's a joke. It's like, where's grace in that? Uh-huh, uh-huh, okay. So then they sing the Ten Commandments. Then prayer for instruction in the law of God and grace to walk always therein. How many churches you've been in, every single Sunday, they pray that God will instruct us in the law, not grace, the law, and that God will make us obedient to the law. <laughs> it's a joke. <laughs> Come on, people, it's a joke. All right, then... The second table of the law. Sometimes they did the whole law at once, and sometimes they did the first table earlier, and then the second. This is Strasbourg. Then, marriages. Then, prayer for illumination, and concluding with the Lord's Prayer. 
asking God to feed us now from his word. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and redeem. Then scripture readings and sermon. Then offering for the poor. Then Lord's Prayer in a long paraphrase. Then Apostles' Creed sung in meter on communion Sundays, otherwise recited by only the pastor. And then psalm, song, and then blessing, benediction. Now, listen, here's my point in reading this to you. This is what Protestant worship was. 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 If you're feeling the tension between what I just read and what you've experienced in in the churches you've been a part of, it's because the church needs to be reformed. That's why. And always when one person stands up and says the church needs to be reformed, everybody else accuses that man of spiritual pride and says that he thinks he's better than everyone. And he goes, no, actually, maybe it's because I'm worse than everyone that it just drives me crazy that I don't hear the law of God. I don't know about you. You may not need to hear the law of God. I need to hear the law of God. (laughs) I know my heart. (laughs) Do you need to hear the law of God? Yes, we need it. Why? Because I love Jesus. Because I believe in grace, I can hear the law of God. All right. Now listen. It is graceful to sing the Ten Commandments. It is graceful to hear the law of God. It is graceful to be called to repentance. But today, the church has become corrupt. And it's turned around and said, forget the law of God to hell with the Ten Commandments. We don't need that. We live by grace. And it's a bunch of... It's a bunch of hooey. That's what it is. Now listen. Listen. We need to reform the church. And every time the church is reformed, you know what happens? Every single time the church is reformed, the people that hate God and hate his word give a nasty name to the people who are calling for reform. (laughs) Okay, do you know where the word Methodist came from? It wasn't a compliment. It was the disgusting name given to those people who thought we should be holy. They were Methodists. And so today you have this denomination called Methodists. All right, do you know where the name Puritan came from? The PCA's main publisher is P&R. That's what they call the publisher, P&R. But it used to be Puritan and Reformed books. See, they did a name change. It weren't good. It went from words to letters. Puritan was the term that was used to denigrate the people who were saying that we must be holy. So today, we're in a day when grace is everything and everybody wants to mince their words and their oaths and everything so that you can kind of feel good about yourself. And so no blow is ever given to you in a strong way. Everything is... Okay, you ready? Everything's like, you know, I don't know about you. (laughs) 
But I find myself sometimes having a real passion for prayer. How about you? You know, and, and I, find that, I find that when I... When I'm driving down the road listening to my iPod with the radio playing and a siren going by, that that's the time when I'm most prayerful. Because, like, as I watch the world and listen to the music, it, it reminds me of some of, the, some of the glorious things about God's grace. And, and I find myself being missional and, and, and wanting to share the narrative And how about you? Now listen, I'm making fun of it because the truth is, as postmoderns, which we all are, I'm postmodern, you're postmodern, all right? As postmoderns, we want everything to be soft and to be a matter of sharing rather than declaring and demanding, all right? And for years, the way I preached was I wrote out my manuscript and I got up into the pulpit and this is the way I preached, Mary, we can tell you this is true. This morning, what we have is a good thing. And I want to share it with you. And I think, and everything was intimate and soft. I never raised my voice, ever, ever, ever. And when you'd ask people why they liked my preaching, you know what they'd say? They'd say, because everything is conversational. And you say, well, what happened? (laughs) Right? Listen, what happened is I realized that you can't say, thus says the Lord. You have to say, thus, thus says the Lord. That's what you have to say. You can't try to present God's mightiness and his authority with a postmodern, femi-gay man. You can't do it because it lies. Your words have to be matched with your, your tone, with your volume. With There has to be some parallel between the way you say something and what you're saying. You know? And so I thought, I need to repent of that. (laughs) Okay? Now, that's the reason we are the way they are. Now, what name will they come up with us for us? Because you know that we're going to stick out like a sore thumb. If we believe in hearing the law in our worship services, are we going to stick out like a sore thumb? What they're going to say is, Could you please muddle the note up a little bit and not be so distinct? And we say, nope, we believe in a clear note. And people say, well, I don't like that name. You say, you also don't like the fact. Now, this is truly the end. Listen, I told you guys I was going to tell you what went on in Protestant worship. But you haven't yet suffered the way you're going to suffer because now I'm going to read to you a prayer. Every single week they read this prayer. Sometimes it varied a little. This is the prayer. Imagine this prayer in the churches you've gone to your whole life. Are you ready? Fasten your safety belts. 
we're hitting, what do they call that? Turbulence. Okay? Oh, Lord God. Here it is. Oh, Lord God, which art mighty and dreadful. I mean, do I have to keep going? Does that do it? Does that make you say, does not compute? Dreadful? I mean, that's not a very approachable God. Okay, O Lord God, mighty and dreadful, thou that keepest covenant and showest mercy to them that love thee and do thy commandments. We have sinned. We have offended. We have wickedly and stubbornly gone back. (laughs) Come on, would you please just say, Uncle? Do you get the point? The church has to be reformed today if we're going to be Protestants. Now, we may decide to become Roman Catholics again. We may decide that evangelicalism is a reform of Protestantism. And then goodbye, I'm not going there. I've been there, done that, I'm younger than that now. Okay? We have offended, we have wickedly and stubbornly gone back from thy laws and precepts. We would never obey thy servants, the prophets that spake in thy name. To our kings and princes, to our forefathers and to all the people of our land. We would never obey them. That's what they confessed. O Lord, righteousness belongs unto thee. Unto us pertaineth nothing but open shame. As it is come to pass this day unto our miserable country of England. Now, I said the reformers, that's because this is what Knox took back to England. Actually, this one wasn't. In the translation, sometimes to get the English, you have to go to those who have just left Geneva in Switzerland and have gone to England, and then you get an English translation, all right? Yea, unto all our nation, whether they be fair or far or near through all lands wherein they are scattered for the offenses that they and we have committed against thee, so that the curses and punishments which are written in thy law are now powered upon us. And thou hast performed those words wherein thou didst menace us and our rulers that governed us in bringing the same plagues upon us which before were threatened. And yet, notwithstanding, both they and we proceed in our iniquity and cease not to heap sin upon sin. Now listen, brother and sister, dear one that I love, okay, I do love you, and I ask you, is that not true of you? Is that not true of you? Is that true of you? It is true of you. Is it true of me? Is it true of me? Is it, come on, is it true of me? When the preacher prayed that at the Reformation, was he speaking for himself? Yes. Now you're free to come to the Lord's table because you've said the truth that not only did God punish you, but when he punished you, you continued to go in your way. And these are Christians confessing this. And now you know the meaning of grace. 
Now you know the meaning of grace because you understand that God shows his mercy and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. That it's Christians who sin and sin and sin and God punishes and then they sin again. This is what we're confessing. And then he says, For they which once were well instructed in the doctrine of thy gospel are now gone back from the obedience of thy truth and are turned again to that most abominable idolatry from the which they were once called by the lovely preaching of thy word. And we, alas, to this day, do not earnestly repent us of our former wickedness, neither do we rightly consider the heaviness of thy displeasure. Such are thy just judgments, O Lord, that thou punishes sin by sin and man by his own inventions, so that there can be no end of iniquities except thou present us with thy undeserved grace. Therefore, convert us, O Lord, and we shall be converted. For we do not offer up our prayers trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold mercies. And although thou hast once of thy special grace delivered us from the miserable thraldom of error and blindness, that's bondage, slavery, thraldom, and called us many times to the sweet liberty of thy gospel, which we notwithstanding have most shamefully abused, in obeying rather our own lusts and affections than the admonitions of thy prophets, yet we beseech thee once again for thy name's sake. I have to, if you saw what I was reading, I'm having to translate, okay? Uh, to, to prove some comfortable drop of thy accustomed mercies upon us. Incline thine ears and open thine eyes to behold the grievous plagues of our country, the continual sorrows of our afflicted brothers, and our woeful banishment. And let our afflictions and just punishment be an admonition and warning to other nations amongst whom we are scattered, that with all reverence they may obey thy holy gospel, lest for like contempt, in the end, like or worse plagues fall upon them. Therefore, O Lord, hear us, O Lord, forgive us, O Lord, consider and tarry not over long, but for thy dear Son, Jesus Christ's sake, be merciful unto us and deliver us. So shall it be known to all the world that thou art the self-same God that ever showeth mercy to all such as call upon thy holy name. Okay, now listen. This is what we as a church want to try to recover. We want to try to recover this. We want to try to recover humility under the gospel. We want to try to recover calling one another to honor God. We don't want to have a cult of self-affirmation. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. We want to cultivate the ability to rebuke one another and for us to be cheerful when we're rebuked. Now, do you understand how we're odd birds? Do you understand how we'll stick out like a sore thumb? Do you understand how people will come up with names? My favorite name is the one woman who very simply said, oh, you're that serious church. <laughs> and I go, <laughs> sounds good to me, <laughs> you know? Because we have to do with serious things, which is the immortality of the soul and God and his, his holiness. 
All right. All right. Let's pray.